complainants have to be their own advocates. And that's crazy. Close to 50% of the victim impact statement was about the trial itself. It was about the process of being cross-examined. That was as traumatic for her as was the actual rape. This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This is part three of our three-part series on Title IX proceedings. We're exploring a debate across college campuses about how universities should handle allegations of sexual misconduct. In part one, we looked at the proceedings generally, and in part two, we specifically looked at the standard of evidence, what has to be proved before a person can be sanctioned. In part three, we're looking at other policies that are common in Title IX proceedings, whether students should be entitled to a support person, what levels of cross-examination should be allowed, and what should be the definition of sexual misconduct. First, some universities have adopted policies that permit the accuser and the accused to bring a support person to their Title IX proceedings while forbidding the support person from actively participating. This is unlike criminal trials or civil trials where often a lawyer is the active participant. I think there's sort of a history to why it probably ended up the way it ended up, and I this is conjectural on my part. That's Professor Katherine Baker, University Distinguished Professor of Law at Chicago Kent College of Law. The, the victims' rights groups were very concerned that victims be able be afforded a supportive person, particularly sort of at, at her first stage of complaint, someone who was actually going to believe her because it was so common for, for people to just dismiss. So that was very important to sort of empower the victim. And so that person sort of had to go along with the victim. And then they thought, well, out of fairness, right, somebody better be allowed to go along with the defendant, right, basic fairness. And then I think that that many schools were averse to the idea of making this whole thing a legal proceeding, right? They didn't want everybody to get lawyered up because that's expensive and it makes it seem particularly adversarial. And I think I think there are actually probably two things that were motivating universities there. One is that that they did want to ma- maintain their sort of norms of community and didn't want it all to seem like a legal process. Um, and the other is I think that they probably wanted to protect the you know, the chair of the English department and the statistics department and the dean of students who's sitting on the tribunal from being run over by the lawyers because lawyers can run over people. Um, and I understand both of those uh, both of those concerns. I think the past few years has showed us that even if the punishment isn't that great, uh, men who are found responsible for this at this stage in our history are going to appeal a huge portion of them are going to go to a court of law to try and get some sort of redress. And I think the lesson is if they're going to end up with a lawyer anyways, you might as well give them a lawyer at the beginning because it doesn't go well when they come in with a lawyer at the end because these judges, what do they know from? They know from legal process. And they look back to the college process and they say, well, that looks odd, right? And odd usually equates with lack of due process. So it all gets thrown out on due process grounds um, when actually colleges were probably well within their rights using the kind of process that they did, but no one fully knows what that is. So if everyone's going to, if we're going to end up in court at all, eventually anyways, it's probably better to just give people lawyers in the first instance. 
These adjudications about sexual misconduct are not like your typical university adjudications about plagiarism. That's Professor Brian Leiter, the Carl N. Llewellyn Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago Law School. In your typical plagiarism case, not all, but your typical plagiarism case, you've got the student writing and you've got the source and the adjudicators can look at it, right? Um, the factual questions in the, in, in the sexual misconduct context get, get much more complicated, which is one reason you want to have more procedural safeguards um, for both parties, for both complainants and respondents. The, the thing that uh, I found astonishing uh, in being a support person is that the first thing I was told by the officials was I wasn't supposed to talk. That struck me as extremely strange um, because it really did mean that um, the person who had a grievance or the person who was possibly being accused of misconduct right, had to be their own advocate. And Coming out of a law school, that struck me as a rather unfortunate way to set it up, right? Um, you know, if you are a complainant, right, something bad and unpleasant has already happened to you. And now you have to go forward and be your own advocate about the badness of it. And, you know, the system, I suppose, is premised on the idea that the investigator is, you know, uh, completely impartial and sympathetic to both sides and da-da-da, you know. But look, I, I think in general we don't worry that the judges are necessarily biased in favor of one party or the other. Some judges may have that reputation, but in general that's not the main worry. Yet we still think that there's a reason to have an advocate, not necessarily a lawyer, but someone who's there who's not supposed to sit in silence but can actually say something on your behalf or help you clarify your thoughts or remind you about something that you forgot to mention, right, and, and so on. Um, so that was the aspect of the, the process that I, I just found completely astonishing. Um, none of the matters in which I acted in this capacity involved allegations of serious sexual misconduct. Um, if they had, I think I would have been more than astonished. I probably wouldn't have complied with the rules. I mean, it really just seemed, you know, kind of crazy. I don't know what it meant to be the support person, you know, the silent support person. Um, as I say, if universities really want to adjudicate these things, let them appoint their version of counsel, right? Let them have staff whose job it is to meet with a complainant and a respondent and take their side and articulate their account of what happened and bring up the issues that are important. I think it's a terrible burden to put on, you know, people who are, believe they are victims and people who all of a sudden find themselves accused to have to defend themselves or to make their case on their own, right? Uh, and we don't do it that way in the legal system. And I think there's good reasons for that. Um, so if, if you assume that the, the system ought to have procedural safeguards that are tilted towards avoiding false guilty verdicts, okay, um, then, of course, the primary worries are going to be about the effects on the respondents or, or the accused. However, the one aspect of the current procedural irregularities um, of the system most universities use is that complainants have to be their own advocates, Right. And that's crazy. 
I mean, it's just, I mean, even if they don't have an actual lawyer, it's crazy that, right, if you believe you have been sexually violated, that you then have the burden of persuading someone that you were, in fact, the victim. Uh, I mean, there's almost something slightly inhumane about it, right? Let complainants have advocates, right? And again, maybe not necessarily lawyers. Obviously, universities are scared to death. I mean, if both parties have lawyers and then, you know, these Title IX officers are basically just, you know, administrators with some training in the rules and, you know, and some guidance about how to approach these things. Okay, fine. So bar, you know, lawyers from it. At least let people... people come with someone who actually is an advocate for them, right? So that you don't place the burden on a complainant, right, of being as persuasive as possible, right? And of thinking of all the relevant evidence to bring up and so on. Um, that aspect of it just strikes me as grotesquely unfair to the, to the complainants. Um, and as I say, that was driven home to me is, you know, being the silence, the mostly silent support person. Uh, it was hard to be completely silent. Let me just say that. Uh, because y- you can just see it's, it's unfair. Right? It's too much for a person who's had a unpleasant, sometimes very unpleasant experience, you know, to have the peace of mind to bring out everything that ought to be brought out for purposes of informing a Title IX adjudicator what actually transpired. A second topic of debate has been cross-examination. The 2011 Dear Colleague letter discouraged universities from permitting accused students to directly cross-examine their accusers. Defenders of the letter have argued that cross-examination of the accuser should be avoided since it has the potential to re-traumatize the accuser. Critics have argued that cross-examination should be preserved as a way of evaluating the persuasiveness of the accuser's story. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I think that the accused should be able to um, write down questions, and, and I think that the school should pretty much have to ask of the um, accuser every. Th- I'm getting my terms. Ask of the um, of the complainant everything that the accused wants asked, with some obvious read through to make sure they're not sort of patently offensive, um, and with I, I guess some sort of eye towards precisely what rape shield laws are supposed to protect against, which is sort of abuse of past of of past history and reputational evidence. Um, but, but I think that for the most part, if he can write questions down, he deserves some sort of answers. So if we want to call that cross-examination, I think he has a right to do it. Um, I think that what absolutely should not happen is that which we still allow in criminal rape trials, which is very vigorous cross-examination, um, and an, a, and a clear attempt to undermine the credibility of the complaining witness by a lawyer. Lawyers are very good at it, um, and it's a brutal process for the victim. And I'm willing to concede that it's necessary in most criminal trials. And, and this distinguishes me from a bunch of feminists who would say that that's wrong, um, because when we depri- when we throw someone in jail, that's a big deal. Um, but. I don't think the evidence could be clearer that that process of cross-examination is completely brutal on victims. And um, I think the most persuasive 
piece of evidence in that regard is actually um, comes out of the Stanford rape trial about a year and a half ago and the victim impact statement of that woman, which was read out loud on TV. Um, and she was asked to do what you're supposed to do in a victim impact statement, which is, which is explain what it's like to be a victim of this crime. And so she was asked to say what it was like to realize that she had been sort of escorted out of this party when, when she was too drunk to remember and slumped against a dumpster and had her clothes ripped off and thrown away and had this guy that she didn't know push his erect penis over all over her body and then digita- uh, penetrate her digitally. That was the gross, horrible thing that the victim impact statement was supposed to be about. And close to 50% of the victim impact statement was about the trial itself. It was about the process of being cross-examined. That was as traumatic for her as was the actual rape. And I think that the failure to acknowledge that by these people who are calling for criminal law safeguards completely ignores what is arguably the primary problem here, which is getting women to come forward at all. I think you can't have meaningful confrontation of the witnesses without also, I mean, meaningful confrontation of the witnesses that isn't, you know, emotionally and psychologically destructive without something like counsel, right? Uh, Even as I say, if it's not actual lawyers, I agree there need to be intermediaries for that to work. But, you know, Confronting the witnesses against you um, is, you know, an important part of legal process in all civilized democratic countries. The U.S. is not an outlier in in this regard, even if the particulars of what we require are not necessarily um, typical elsewhere. Um, You know, secret evidence and secret witnesses, you know, smell bad, right? on the other hand, right, this is where the need for some kind of, you know, even if it is a pointed Title IX representative, here's yours complainant and here's yours respondent, right? Um, someone ought to be able to ask pertinent questions, right? Um, and to test the reliability of statements that are made and, and so on. But I agree, a situation in which um, someone, you know, who is alleged that they have been sexually assaulted, you know, gets to be quizzed by the alleged sexual assailant, right, seems kind of grotesque. Um, and that's why, you know, there are bigger procedural issues here than just the, the standard of proof. And if we fix some of the other procedural problems, a lower standard of proof might not be such a big deal. A third point of controversy has been how universities ought to define what counts as sexual assault. Should it be the same as the criminal definition? Should it be more expansive to prevent other misconduct? I think what the Dear Colleague letter covers, and I think what college sexual misconduct policies should cover, is a wide range of behavior. Um, There is... Uh, behavior that is really, I'm going to say nothing other than, nothing other than forced kissing, someone just forcing a kiss on someone. There's behavior that I think tends to be more traumatizing, which is really, really bullying someone in a one-on-one situation where often, if you listen to their testimonials, women just give up, right? They say no, they say no. In my opinion, no rational person could believe that she really wanted to say yes in that situation, but she finally just says, fine, do what you want to do. 
And that should not be criminal behavior. I completely agree it should not be criminal behavior. Um, but it, it, I think it's perfectly fair game for colleges to regulate that and say, you know what, that is, that is a kind of bullying behavior that's just not acceptable on our campus. And then you have stuff that would be sexual assault anyway. I don't think that everybody is classifying everything as sexual assault. And I don't think that colleges are trying to regulate everything as sexual assault. The stuff that shouldn't be brought criminally or that can't be brought criminally shouldn't be very harshly or, sorry, as harshly penalized either, right? The, so if someone was found responsible for forced kissing or even some forms of sexual bullying, the appropriate punishment is something like switch classes, switch dorms, maybe take a semester off. That's hugely different than sending someone to jail, right? So I think that that there's a tendency to see all of this as sexual assault when that is actually not what the Dear Colleague Relator was trying to do at all. It was trying to actually get at the underlying norm of male sexual entitlement that most of the time manifests itself in behavior that's not criminal, but is nonetheless problematic. I think that the conversations that are being uh, held around these issues are already so, I use the word paranoid. That's Professor Laura Kipnis, a professor at the Northwestern School of Communication. I mean, I think that what needs to happen is almost a kind of weeding out of the the, the paranoid language, the assumptions, the gender bias um, in, you know, in the codes themselves, in the kinds of conversations we're having about the codes. And those conversations aren't happening. You know, people um, are want to have these conversations about policy and, you know, like, what should the standard of evidence be? But I, I think there needs to be more um, substantive conversations ha held before we get to that point of what the policies should be. You know, I mean, if, if, if the tenor of the conversations is, is kind of in the realm of hysteria, then the procedures are, are you know, going to have that, that quality themselves. What I've seen happening is that there's a real expansion of what constitutes sexual assault and not a clear line between, uh, you know, somebody's sense of, you know, injury and a kind of actual assault. Pretty much every week somebody lodges a complaint about somebody else, say, being an asshole. But, you know, it's not, that's not what Title IX is actually there to adjudicate. I mean, yes, people act like jerks and assholes, um, you know, and, but I think the Title IX officers are being asked to address that sort of behavior an awful lot of the time. So how do the professors think universities should reform their procedures going forward, if at all, what should Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos consider when she is thinking about how to modify the 2011 guidance? Mostly supportive of what the Obama administration did, but like all good ideas that get started or almost all good ideas that get started by the federal government, um, we're from the government, we, we're here to help you. It, uh, it got bogged down in bureaucracy, um, which was especially ironic because the... Um, the primary message that most schools got from the Obama administration is that you have to be prompt and effective in your response. And 
for a bunch of women who ended up going to DOE because they didn't feel that they had had prompt and effective response from their schools, DOE took a year, two years to get back with any kind of resolution, and the woman was gone from the school, and it was all over. Um, so I think we have to have a way of making these things move more quickly. Um, I, I think that's important. I, I think that, you know, uh, I've, I've sort of indicated some of the things I think that, you know, she could say if she feels that process has been denied so much is to let the guy get a lawyer, right? That's going to be onerous for the school, but not impossible. Um, I think that I'm actually relatively optimistic. Maybe that's an overstatement. I, almost regardless of what she does, um, because I think what the Obama administration did was put in place a process that it's going to be very difficult for schools to walk back, even if the Trump administration gives them the leeway to walk it back. Because once you acknowledge that this stuff happens, right, you, the vast majority of school administrators are not sort of evil, horrible, misogynistic people who just want women to get abused all the time, right? Most of them are really pretty offended at the level of stuff that happens on their campuses, and they want to do something about it. So, once they recognize that they actually probably have the freedom to adjudicate this stuff the way they adjudicate other forms of misconduct, I think they're going to continue to do so. Um, and so, you know, if she feels that she has to, she has to protect against those instances where some schools have, and I concede some schools have done ridiculous things, um, then, you know, she can say the accused should be entitled to a, um, to a lawyer. I mean, some obvious things. I mentioned the the need for there to be some sort of support person for a victim when she first comes forward. You can't have the person whose job it is to believe the victim also be a fact finder. That's ridiculous, right? And I mean, and, and that doesn't take a lawyer to figure out that that's ridiculous, right? I mean, clarifying some of those things, clarifying that informal processes are fine, um, clarifying for everybody that the women themselves the vast majority of them don't want to ruin the accused's life. That's like the second thing out of their mouth. The first thing out of their mouth is, I don't want this to happen to have to happen to someone else. And the second thing is, I don't want to ruin his life. I just want this behavior to stop. Right. And there, if we're not ruining his life, that means the kind of process we can afford him can be much more informal, much more collaborative, um, and can be rooted at really trying to figure out what happened and do something about those, the norms that let it happen, as opposed to just meeting out a harsh punishment for what we consider an outrageous conduct. It is not clear to me that the burden of proof uh, should lie with the accuser on the question of consent. That's Professor Daniel Hamill, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. So this is an open question in uh, battery law, but um, uh, one way to characterize the tort of battery is an intentional touching of the person of another causing harm or, cons uh, harm or offense. That is the prima facie case that the uh, accuser, that the plaintiff has to prove. Uh, and then the accused, the defendant, can come back by uh, proving consent. Consent is an affirmative defense. And the burden of proving consent lies with the accused rather than the accuser. And the standard of proof is preponderance of the evidence. Um, 
in a way, we could we could describe the Obama administration's 2011 guidance as less radical than just applying this kind of plain vanilla conception of battery law to assault cases where consent is an affirmative defense that the defendant has to prove. And I think there are good reasons for uh, for making consent an affirmative defense rather than making non-consent an element of the prima facie case. Uh, namely, it's much easier to prove uh, a positive than a negative, right? Uh, it's much easier to show that someone consented uh, than to show uh, than to show non-consent. Um, and uh, not only do I think that's true as an evidentiary matter, I think it's probably a good thing if on our university campuses, we have a norm that you can't touch other people unless they consent. It's not that you can touch other people unless they don't non-consent. Um, so do I think that the Trump administration uh, Department of Education is going to do that? No, uh, but uh, maybe if DeVos ever starts the notice and comment process, it will give me an opportunity to send in that suggestion to regulations.gov. We have created some uh, legal tools that are really good at confirming consent, right? We, um, you do it 50 times in your day. You click uh, yes on the terms and conditions. So if, this, uh, if two people who have never had intercourse before are uh, having intercourse and they are concerned about uh, the other uh, accusing them of, uh, of sexual assault, I would say one, you should probably reconsider your choice of partner, but uh, uh, understanding that uh, students over 18 have some uh, self-ownership freedom over themselves, write down a contract uh, that says we consent, we're both sober, uh, and uh, neither of us will reveal the terms of this contract uh, unless it's in a uh, legal or administrative proceeding uh, about sexual assault. Take out your phones, take a picture of it, problem solved. Uh, you know, maybe include some sort of liquidated damages clause in case uh, one of the two uh, uh, reveals this information um, outside of the context of a campus sexual assault proceeding or a legal proceeding. University of Chicago students are able to you know, start businesses, write thousands of lines of software code that I can't comprehend. Uh, I'm pretty sure they would be able to figure out ways of manifesting consent, uh, which you know contract law uh, has been able to do for centuries. You know, I suppose I think the real question will be what the what the replacement guidelines look like, um, and uh, yeah, if, if I were writing the replacement guidelines, I would, as it were, again treat the standard of proof question right, say that it has to be considered in context of what sanctions are potentially involved but also what other procedures are in place to assure fair adjudication of these, these claims. And I do think the most important one that would moot a lot of the doubts, or should, I think, moot the doubts people have about preponderance would be, in effect, representation for complainants and respondents, and through that representation, an opportunity to confront witnesses and test the reliability of evidence. Right? I think those two things alone would make a, would make a huge difference here. Um, and I think it would make a huge, you know, I think courts would look much more favorably on this. 
and also be more less concerned about the standard of proof, right? Because after all, in the civil context, we know preponderance of the evidence as a standard of proof on which we rely. You know, one of the things that I have found out is that the um, Department of Education is actually, or the Office for Civil Rights, is actually sitting on a huge amount of information that isn't really processed about what sorts of things uh, have been brought up as Title IX cases. Because every time they do an OCR investigation, you know, they go back two or three, three to five years um, of the cases for that particular campus. And they have all this information. And I think that we really need to uh, know what has been happening. I mean, one of the things on campus in these sorts of sexual, uh, these sorts of sexual situations, particularly between students, because one of the things I found out from talking to my own students is, yes, I think there is a huge amount of unwanted sex going on, but I don't think all of it rises to the level of either crime or something that's prosecutable. I mean, a lot of it is has to do with disputes over consent and whether something that happened was consensual or not. So I end up thinking that, you know, we've been overly focused on, on regulation and on adjudication and insufficiently focused on education. And that's where I think that campuses are falling down. Um, so, this is a bit not exactly an answer to the question that you asked, but that I think is the problem. We're not educating students and particularly we're not educating women students in how to handle uncomfortable situations that arise. And I'm not talking about sexual assault or the use of physical force, you know, which is sexual assault. I'm talking about situations where women, you know, for the most part, it's women students end up having sexual encounters that they didn't want to have. And the, you know, oftentimes it's bad communication between two people. For the most part, it's huge amounts of alcohol being consumed on both sides. And if we can't be frank with students and really address them where they live and, and talk to them about, uh, you know, not as, as regulators, but as educators about how to have, um, you know, better experiences and particularly freshman women who are, I think, you know, everybody knows uh, the most vulnerable in these situations. And I think we're not doing, you know, a good job at education. I think that, you know, I could understand that being interrogated by somebody who you say sexually assaulted you would be a distressing experience and nobody wants the adjudications to be more distressing. But I do think there have to be procedures where the accused person gets to, um, you know, at least through some proxy, ask questions. Because I've heard of cases and talked to students where the the kid that I mentioned who was expelled, um, this was over like a dispute over uh, asking for a blowjob twice. So that was not sexual assault. He was accused of emotional coercion. He was allowed 10 minutes in the um, process to defend himself, you know, in front of a panel of adults. And, you know, I've heard of a lot of other situations like that where, say, text messages that the accused person presents as exculpatory, you know, evidence is not even considered. 
So every campus has their own procedures, um, from, from what I understand, and oftentimes they are really unfair to the accused. So I think, you know, the procedures have to be fair to, to both sides. Debate continues, and the Department of Education has stated that it will speak with survivors, campus administrators, parents, students, and experts as it moves forward with new guidance on how universities should handle allegations of sexual misconduct on their campuses. This episode of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, was produced by Katherine Running, Tom Malloy, and John Tinkin. Music from bensound.com. Special thanks to the entire online team, including Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, Noelle Ottman, and our editor-in-chief, Pat Ward, and executive editor, Kyle Jorstad. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out parts one and two.